Well, good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe Community Church. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're taking a one-week break from our regular preaching series through 2 Samuel. If you've been following where we are in the book of Samuel, next chapter is chapter 13. It's not exactly the most family-friendly chapter. I'll just leave it at that. You can look at it. Um, but that's one of the reasons why we're taking a break. But one of the other reasons why we're doing this one-off is because, as many of you know, I just returned from a sabbatical a few weeks ago. And we wanted to take this time, this Sunday, as an opportunity to share a little bit about that, about that experience, about what happened, what I learned. Um, see, one of the goals of sabbatical wasn't just a vacation or rest, but it was really spiritual renewal. That's what the elders wanted uh, for me and my family, uh, just to be able to rest with God, but also to learn from him and to kind of spend time in the word and in prayer without kind of the pressure of having to uh, take something from what I learned and pass it on to other people, just to sit with God. So it was a good time for me, and I'm grateful that I got it. But I really think it wasn't just for me. I mean, ultimately, yes, I was supposed to rest and be renewed and all of that. But ultimately, I think what they wanted and what I hoped for is that I'd be able to come back and to be able to share not just about sabbatical, but from sabbatical. That I could share what God taught me and pass it on to you and hopefully be able to serve you all with not just greater energy, but also a stronger relationship with God. And there's something I think God taught me about um, during sabbatical. Uh, I think there's something that he taught me about having a relationship with him. Um, it's something that's all over scripture. So it might not be new intellectually for you, but the truth is, and maybe there's some of you who uh, relate to this, but the truth is for me, even though I'd heard it a million times, I felt like it hit me differently uh, this time around. So Ephesians 3, it's all over the Bible, but I think Ephesians chapter 3 is a good place to go. And we're in one of Paul's prayers in this book, verses 14 through 19. So let me read the text. I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Ephesians 3. These are the words of the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray during this time, God, we come before you and we bow our knees and we know that you are a great king and yet we can call you father, that you want what's best for us. So God, I pray that what's in this text, I just pray that it would be true of us. God, that we might have the strength, the ability to comprehend just how great your love for us in Christ is. God, I pray that these words which might be familiar, maybe over-familiar to a lot of us, would hit us in a fresh way. That we would be blown away by the depth of theological truth and just the sheer grace that is found in a passage like this. And God, I pray for the kids that you would help them to really take this in, God, in some way. 
God, we look to you. Thank you that you love us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever felt like you didn't have enough? Have you ever felt like you didn't have enough? And I left that purposefully kind of vague. It could be I didn't have enough Legos to enjoy my day, or I didn't have enough money, or my house didn't have enough square footage, or maybe I didn't have enough really good close friends. Way back in the day, before the TSA, I don't know if you guys remember this, but before the TSA, before the stricter or stricter security measures in the airport, you used to be able to just walk to the gate. So if one of your friends or a family member was going to take off on a flight, you didn't have to drop them off outside. You could actually park and walk in with them and go through into the airport, and you could see them take off in the plane from the window. Back in the day, the author, Bob Perks, was at the airport. He was waiting for his flight, and he overheard a, uh, he overheard a father and his grown daughter saying goodbye right before she had to get on her flight and leave. He looked over and he saw them, you know, just saying goodbye, uh, hugging. The father said, I love you, which was what he expected to hear. But then the father said something that piqued Bob Perks' interest, something Bob Perks had never heard before, something that made him very curious. The father said, I love you and I wish you enough. I wish you enough. Have you ever felt like you didn't have enough? See, when I ask this question, implicit in it is the assumption that if only we could have a little bit more, things would be better. If only I could just get a little bit more of this, this, or that, we would be content. But think about it for a second. When is it ever enough? You know, the uh, Super Bowl winning quarterback, the GOAT, Tom Brady, you guys know him. They asked him, he's won seven Super Bowls. They asked him, which of your seven championships was the best? Like the most memorable, the most meaningful. And he said, my favorite Super Bowl is the next one. It's always the next one. So what does it mean to have enough? Let's dig into that for a moment. Think about it for yourself. Make it personal. Is there really a number of dollars that would make it so you'd never care about or think about money ever again? Imagine the greatest house, your dream house that has everything you want, the exact kitchen you want, the layout, all the features. Is there a house that could possibly exist that would make it so you'd never, never go on Instagram again to look at house ideas, never turn on HGTV a single time? Is there a job that would be so perfect that you'd always want to go in, never want to look for something else? You'd be skipping and hopping to work every single day for the rest of your life. Don't even want to retire. You want to die there. And what about church? Church has a complicated relationship with enough. I've seen the life cycle of churches, more and more activities, more events, more programs, just trying to keep the machine going. And then growth. Some churches, that's all they can think about. They get consumed by it. We got to get bigger. And people start burning out. You're a bus that's driving over people, leaving dead bodies behind you. And then there's the personal guilt. That sometimes pastors place on you. Sometimes pastors feel ourselves the personal guilt of I'm not doing enough. I come to church and I hear about how I need to do more to be a faithful parent or a faithful spouse, to be a good servant, a good evangelist, etc., etc. I mean, a lot of Christians feel deep down inside that they don't love God enough. Now, we're in the book of Ephesians today. Ephesians was actually the first book we ever preached at Zoe, um, 
Any guys around for that? Not that many of you, I think, were around for this book. And I'm, re- I'm a little sad about it because Ephesians is literally the craziest book in the Bible. And I feel like we used it up already. And I don't know if we're ever going to get back to it because there's 65 other books we got to do. So I relish this opportunity. But Ephesians truly is, all joking aside, an uh, incredible book. Some would even say that it is a crown jewel in the New Testament theologically. The first chapter contains one gigantic sentence, 257 words in the Greek. That's how crazy this book is. Anyway, there might not be another place, though, that really goes this deep theologically on the one hand, but also gets us practical on the other hand. It's a neat book. The first three chapters, they're about concepts, things that you need to understand and know. Uh, it's uh, a place of theology and, and understanding doctrine. The second three chapters focus on conduct. So it's concepts and conduct. And we need to learn to marry the two. And that's why we're in the middle of this book in chapter three. It's six chapters long. We're right at this turning point. And it's here that Paul connects the two halves. He's showing us through prayer kind of how this works, how to take these concepts somehow and to apply it to our lives and how we live. And what he prays for isn't so different than what that father that I talked about wished for his daughter. He wants them to know that enough is available. Because if you understand that, then everything else will flow from it. So let's do this. There are three petitions in this passage. It's one prayer, but there's three main things that Paul is getting at that he's asking. And these three things, these petitions, they will form the backbone of our outline today. So first petition is the first point, okay? The ability. The ability. Which is about the capacity to receive more. Verse 14. For this reason, Paul writes, I bow my knees before the Father. You could stop there. It's an interesting conflation of images right off the bat. It was common in those days, okay, just a little context historically. It was common in those days to stand when you prayed. Okay, it was a way to show honor and respect and reverence for God. Like if someone important comes into a room, you would stand up. You wouldn't just be like lounging around. So they would stand up and pray usually. But if they wanted to show extreme reverence for God, they would not just stand up. They would actually get down and put their faces to the ground. They would bow as if God were a king. And that's, in fact, who he is. So Paul says, I bow my knees before, and you expect him to say before the king of kings, before the Lord of lords, but instead he says before the father, the father. Now, of course, you respect your father, at least in that time you did. But the word father also has a connotation of intimacy of someone who cares about you, who is for you. Okay, so think about that. And then notice this too. He starts off this verse by saying, for this reason. So let me give you a little bit of the textual context. This goes back to the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. If you look at the very beginning of this chapter, Paul starts off by saying, for this reason, I, Paul. So Paul started this prayer earlier on in the chapter, but then he had a kind of divine uh, inspired tangent that he went on talking about some other stuff. Now he's coming back to the prayer. And this prayer is a continuation, a conclusion of everything that came before in the first two chapters. And what he's talked about in this first half are all these truths, all these theological concepts of what God has done for Christians in Christ. So for example, if you know Ephesians at all, you know that he talked about that you're saved by grace through faith. You're not saved by works. It's not what you do. It's not about being a good person. It's not about earning your salvation. It's a gift according to the mercy of God. He's talked about how we've been redeemed 
that we've been saved from the wrath of God, that we've been sealed with the very spirit of God, that all Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, have been united into one body in Christ, that the walls have been broken down. Paul talks about all these things that are true. And then he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And there's some debate as to how this verse should be interpreted. But at the very least, Paul is referring to the immensity of who God is. He's saying, I'm going to the God who can do anything. The God who is for us. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being. Okay, so put it together. According to how gloriously rich God is, how richly glorious God is, according to the nature of God himself as both the king of kings, but also your own personal father, Paul prays that God would give the Ephesian believers and by proxy us as Christians strength. And that's the first petition, strength, that you would have strength, that you would have inner power. Now, sit with that for a moment. Sit with that for a moment. What does that even mean? Someone even asked me this recently, kind of unrelated. They said, you know how the Bible talks about things like having like strengthening or spiritual power? What does that mean? Because they looked it up in a commentary and it says something like, you know, uh, spiritual strength is spiritual power that will help you. It was so vague that it's almost funny. And a lot of times, Paul is like this, where you read something and you're like, okay, that's nice. But if you stop and really try to dissect it and understand it for your own life, you're like, I have no idea what this means. Like, what is this supposed to do for me? That's why context is so important. Because if you look at verse 17, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what is Paul praying for here? What do we need? He's praying that we will have strength. Okay, get that. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts. Now think about it. What is strength? At a basic level, don't just think spiritual strength. Just think strength in general. Strength is the ability to do something, the capacity to withstand force or to produce force. So what Paul is talking about is having more of the capacity or ability to house the nearness of Christ in our lives. Now that might not sound super clear, but let me explain it like this. During my sabbatical, we took a long trip, like a month-long trip to the West Coast. We drove. And uh, one of the places that we went, one of the main places we wanted to hit up was Disneyland, the happiest and also most expensive place on earth. So that was cool for us. I felt like I had to come back to work ASAP uh, to make up my debt. But anyway, I'd been to Disneyland before, and my oldest daughter had been to Disneyland before when she was younger. And uh, it had been fun. Um, it had been cool. I think she enjoyed it okay. Um, but the thing was, back then when we, she, when we went, she was smaller, she was shorter, which meant she couldn't ride some of the rides, right? She's still taking a nap, I think. So she fell asleep for like two hours in the afternoon. A very expensive two hours to just be chilling, doing nothing. Um, and she didn't know like all the characters and stuff the same way she does now. But we went, now she's seven years old, and uh, she didn't fall asleep. She was tall enough to ride Space Mountain. She could go on some of the faster rides. She recognized more of the characters. See, the thing is, Disneyland didn't change. In fact, it probably got worse. It got more expensive and more crowded, and there's some COVID stuff. But anyway, it didn't change, but my daughter did. Sorry I talked about you. I see you looking at me. Her capacity to enjoy it had increased. And this is sort of what Paul is getting at. That God who is able and willing 
our Father who is the King, would give these Christians the ability to experience more of what is already true and really already there for the taking. It's not that what they have in, uh, it's not that what they have in Christ, what Paul has talked about for three chapters, it's not like that changes. It's that we would have the ability to experience it and take it in for ourselves more fully. See, Paul didn't forget his theology. You know, sometimes people look at this verse and they say, what does that even mean? Doesn't Christ dwell in heaven? And he does bodily. Okay, that's why the ascension was a big deal. That's why we await his second coming. But spiritually, spiritually speaking, Christ does dwell in our hearts by faith and through the Holy Spirit. That's why it's not wrong to say I accepted Jesus into my heart if you get what you're talking about. There is a spiritual dimension to that. Every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And yet, Paul prays that we would have the ability to take in that experience more. And you know why? Because a lot of us don't. I mean, how many of us consciously are aware and think about the fact, the truth, that Jesus, the Spirit of the living God, is with us all the time? And when was the last time you were just standing around at a random place all alone, but then you realize you're not alone. We wake up, we hit the snooze or hit the ground running. We have responsibilities. We go to sleep, rinse and repeat. Next thing you know, it's Sunday and we're here at church again and we read the Bible, which is the word of God. We sing songs to God. We meet with people. The only reason we have a relationship with these people is because we worship the same God. And yet even then, We can go through week after week after week, not really consciously thinking about the fact that God is actually present with us. You know, in 2012, I was able to go on the trip of a lifetime to Israel. I've shared about it before, um, and it's a beautiful place, great food. um, But that's not why the trip and the vacation was so great. It's because we were able to go to all these different sites. And I think the thing that really struck me the most was the fact that I walked on some of the same places that Jesus had walked 2,000 years ago. Like we were on the Sea of Galilee and we were in a boat because you can't walk on the water, right? And we're just riding around and someone's like, let's put on some Chris Tomlin. I don't know. So we did. And uh, we're listening to it. And I was like, this is cool. But then I thought for a moment, Jesus walked on this water. And it just blew me away. It was just the craziest thought that I could ever think. And then we went to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And if you know anything about it, now it's not the same, right? It's it's ruins, basically, but the foundation is still there. And you can go down inside, and you can stand on the top where the Dome of the Rock is. And we were there on the top, and I'm just walking around, and I, I had that thought again. Like, Jesus actually walked on these stones. Like he actually walked into here and he said, this is my father's house. Not to mention the Shekinah glory used to be housed within the walls that were built on this foundation. It takes your breath away. It feels real and tangible in a way that I never felt before, honestly. What Paul is praying here is that you wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem or feel like you need to take a trip to Israel to experience this. What Paul is praying here is that the realization that God is here might take your breath away right now. You don't need to travel. All you need is faith. I mean, just think for yourself. When was the last time, when was the last time that took your breath away? Or maybe for some of you, like, has it ever? I wish we had more time for these verses. We could do a sermon on each one. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones did do that. Um, and that's really necessary, but we need to move. Okay, we need to move. So let's go to the second point. So he prays for the ability 
Not that God needs to come closer to us, but that we need to recognize that he already is close. Second, the apprehension, the apprehension, which is another word for comprehension or understanding, but it started with an A, okay? So you can understand why I did that. The apprehension, which is about knowing what God wants you to know, specifically that he loves you, because it's easy to doubt. Verse 17, Paul says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Okay, you can stop there. The theme of this second section is love in a word. Follow Paul's train of thought here. He says that the Ephesian Christians, they're rooted and grounded in love. And it's mixed metaphors. Paul likes to do this a lot, but he's doing it to drive home a point. So the first metaphor, rooted, it has to do with plants, right? It has to do with agriculture, right? When you plant a plant in the ground, its roots go into the dirt. I feel like it sounded better when I wrote it than when I said it. Um, but uh, we, we were kind of gardening at our house, and I saw this firsthand, how plants, you see the top, you see the leaves and stuff, but really what connects them is the roots, and that's where they get their nutrients. That's what keeps them from blowing away in the wind. And then grounded, it's a construction image, architecture. The foundation, he's saying, is love. So what Paul is getting at, using two separate metaphors, is that the beginning the foundational truth, the thing that's going to tether you to the ground is love. I mean, what's the most famous verse in the entire Bible? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If God didn't have love for the world, no one would be saved and none of us would be here. Now, John three sixteen. I brought that up for a reason because for a lot of us, it's the first verse that we memorized. If we ever memorized a verse, if you uh, maybe never went to church growing up, you probably even heard that verse somewhere. And if you grew up in church, the first song you might have ever learned was also about the same subject. I was thinking about this. I grew up going to church, as a number of you did, and one of the first songs I ever learned was Jesus Loves Me. Do you guys know this song? I heard there was a, our friend, Kenny, came to speak when I was on sabbatical, and he was like singing up here and doing all that stuff, and I'm not going to do that. Okay, that's Kenny's thing. That's not my thing. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I will recite the lyrics. It goes, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. You guys know this song? Yes. Are you going to play the song after? James says no. So uh, you could you could listen to it on uh, YouTube.com. But the thing is, I feel like I, I knew about Jesus's love. Ever since I can remember, it was a preschool truth for me. And for many, it is. And when we grow up, we want to kind of graduate beyond the simple things like John 3.16 and Jesus loves me. We want to learn some hymns with meaty theology. We want to stop studying John 3.16 and we want to go into the deep end, Romans or Revelation or something like that. In fact, there was a point in my life where if a pastor or someone said, we're going to talk about the love of God today, I'd be like, eh, I don't know if this guy's that legit kind of shallow here, preschool theology, but that is how I felt. But what does Paul pray for here in one of the deepest books in the Bible? Verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, not just the preschoolers. It's for all of us. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? Okay, so he's saying it's big. 
The love of God is deeper than we realize. It reaches higher than we understand. Its dimensions are beyond what we can fathom. Paul is praying that we would have a sense of the immensity of the love of God in Christ Jesus, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's something really interesting in how Paul talks here. If you caught it, he frames it in a weird way. He says, I want to pray that you would know the love of Christ that is that's, uh, that surpasses knowledge. Now, be careful in how you understand this. Paul doesn't say it bypasses knowledge. I think there's an approach in Christianity where it's like, forget all the thinking stuff. You just got to put it all out of your mind and just feel, just feel it. It's all about emotion. Now, emotion is part of it, but so is the mind. It's both. So we do need to learn theology. We need to learn that love is an attribute of God's character. We need to learn that the word for love here is agape. We need to see where else it is in scripture. But what Paul is saying is, even if you know all of that, it's not enough. Because the love of Christ is beyond that. You know, a couple of months ago, on the same trip where we were going to Disneyland, we stopped at the Grand Canyon. Um, and the thing is, you know, even if you've never been to the Grand Canyon, we live in the internet age, so you've seen pictures, you've seen videos, uh, high-quality videos of the Grand Canyon. I'd seen a lot before, too. And I'd been to the Grand Canyon once, but even in my memory, okay, I showed up at the Grand Canyon this time, and honestly, it looked fake. Like I, I was like, the only way I could describe it was, it looks like there's a green screen or something, and I'm watching it because it was so much crazier than even my memory or any video or picture that I had. Like, it was so unbelievable that the only way I could put it into words was, I don't even think it's real. I think it's fake. But then I was there, and I'm just looking at it for a while, and I see it with my own two eyes, and we're taking in the majesty of it. And you kind of have to believe it, because it's right there. It is real. See, the love of Christ, while not separate from knowledge, is ultimately beyond it. You can't just see the picture, so to speak. You can't just read about it, study the books about it. That won't do it justice. You need to know it deep down in your own life. And that brings me to my sabbatical. I thought I was, I was going to share about it. I didn't want to make this all about my sabbatical, um, but it's connected. See, the truth is, um, my sabbatical uh, came at a good time, I think, a needed time for me. Uh, the first few years of church planning uh, are a whirlwind. You're just trying to keep your head above water um, but kind of the good thing about that is you're running on pure adrenaline. You're just doing one thing after another, and you're kind of just going and going and going. Maybe Eric and James feel the same way. Um, but after a few years, that starts to fade, right? The adrenaline starts to wear out, and I think you start to get a little tired. Plus, you know, 2020, 2021 were kind of crazy years. And I was seeing all these people around me, all these pastors that I knew, people I went to school with, uh, people I looked up to getting disqualified from full-time ministry, I'm sure you guys have read about some people. Uh, I've seen people just quit, like their church, and try to move on to a different place, or maybe quit ministry altogether. I know a lot of people who were in ministry three years ago who are not in it anymore. And I knew I wasn't in a healthy place myself. I just felt kind of down. I felt like the fire was dwindling and not growing. So I really tried to do more. And some of you guys know this. I think I shared with you about a year ago. I really tried to do more. So I tried to double down on the things that I thought would help me, um, the things that I thought I could control. So I started reading the Bible a lot, and I started praying a lot. I think I read the Bible twice in like eight months, 
which is not to brag. It just shows that I think I was kind of in a bad place. So I was reading the Bible. I was like spinning the wheels faster and faster and faster. But the thing was, the fire wasn't growing. I felt like it was kind of getting worse. I was almost like burning myself out. And the thing about being a pastor, I don't think being a pastor is like the hardest job in the world or it's harder than your job or anything like that. But I think the one thing about being a pastor is that if you don't feel like being a pastor, if you're just going through the motions for a paycheck, then you're really not a pastor at all. So I was doing all this stuff. I was kind of struggling. And then I started sabbatical. And the first week I decided I wasn't going to do any spiritual disciplines unless I really wanted to. I just wanted to see where I was at for real. Nothing external. No one's going to check on me. I told Eric and James, no, don't check on me at all. Like, I'm dead to you guys. Um, and they didn't. So good friends you guys are. Thanks. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but I really felt like, okay, I'm just going to see what happened. And that first week, I read the Bible, zero. Zero. I, I, in case you're worried, I did read it a little bit more as sabbatical went on. But during that experiment, I literally read the Bible, zero. I just didn't feel like it. I barely prayed. And one week turned into two, and my love for God, I felt like it was barely like flickering inside of me. It was concerning, to say the least. And the rest was good. I mean, physically, it was good. But spiritually, it just wasn't enough to just take a break. And then in the second half of my sabbatical, I picked up this old Puritan book that I had read years ago called Communion with God by John Owen. I don't even know why I picked it up. I don't know what I was expecting. I had already read it before. Um, but then I started reading, and the first thing he said was, if you want communion with God, if you want communion with your Father in heaven, then it all comes back to God's love. And I was like, I think, okay, this doesn't sound like a Puritan, for one. But it also, I mean, I feel like I already know this, so what am I missing here exactly? And he said, it doesn't start with your love for God, it starts with his love for you. So he's like, do you know that God loves you if you're a Christian? And I thought, I mean... Yes, I mean, I sang the song literally, Jesus loves me, this I know. But maybe I don't, or maybe I've forgotten or something. And he said, the answer, if you want it, is simple. If you want to know God's love for you, you simply have to believe it. It's faith. If you want to know God's love for you, then you have to believe that God loves you. And when you believe that God loves you, that's when everything changes. And something clicked for me. Because I had been trying to will myself and force myself to love God more because I felt like it was fading from my own heart. I didn't learn anything new theologically. But what I learned in reading that book is that somewhere along the line, I had started to believe that God's love for me was somehow dependent on my love for him. I wasn't sure he loved me because how could you love a pastor that spends an entire week without reading his Bible? But the truth is, and I think maybe I just believed it again, is that we love because he first loved us, First John 4. So Christian, I'm going to ask you something, a question. Don't put it off. Don't skip over it. If you take one thing away, you can just take this away. Just mull over this question. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that God loves you? That there is a love that stretches from east to west, a love that is long enough to go to the ends of eternity, a love that is higher than heaven itself, a love that is deeper than the ocean. Do you believe that this love is freely available to you, a sinner, by faith? Do you believe that this love guarantees that everything that happens to you in this life will work out for good 
so you don't have to worry? Do you believe in a love that doesn't change even when you stumble and fall and forget? Do you believe? Because if you do, if you do, it's yours and it's enough. And this leads to the final point. The final point. Briefly now, the abundance. The abundance, which is about what I mean when I say it's enough. What does that even mean? Now, don't get me wrong. We are called to love God. We are called to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. I'm not saying just take a, just wait until you feel like it again to read your Bible. I'm not saying that. We are called unto obedience and service and repentance and even to take up our own crosses and to follow Jesus. But all of our lives are not meant to be lived out of a place of emptiness. They're meant to be lived out of a place of fullness. Look at the last verse. Paul prays that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The third petition builds on everything that came before. Paul prays that these Christians would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, some say this is one of the hardest phrases to wrap your mind around in the entire Bible. What does it mean to be filled with God's own fullness? If you read the rest of the Bible, it becomes pretty clear that it doesn't mean certain things. It doesn't mean that we literally become deity ourselves. Some point to Colossians 1.19, which says that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So maybe it's another word for saying the image of Christ is formed in us. There's all these different things you could read. But the phrase itself is so sublime, you can't reduce it down to something like spiritual maturity or something like that, or a vague strength or power. I think what Paul is praying for ultimately is that they would be totally and completely satisfied with God himself. For example, if he were bread, that you would eat enough that you would never be hungry again. Or if he were water, that you would drink enough and you would never thirst. Some people are thinking, that sounds really familiar. Where have I heard that before? Our scripture reading, John 6.35, it ended with these words. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So what is Paul saying? That they would have the ability to experience God's nearness in Christ through the Holy Spirit who is present, that they would apprehend the immensity of the love of Christ for them, a love that's not dependent on their own love at all, and that they would be filled with the abundance that is God himself. See, ultimately, God is giving you maybe not what you want, but he's giving you what you need, which is him. Paul prays that they would know that God is enough. And this is so relevant. Honestly, I was reading this poll this week, this study, and they said 2022 people in America are unhappier than they have ever been, literally. More people reported that they are unhappy and less people said that they were happy. And yet the truth is this isn't new. It's just a continuation of a trend that's been going on for hundreds of years. Augustine, St. Augustine, as some of you call him, that's more the grass for me. But Augustine, he made the observation in his confessions in the year 400 that our hearts are restless. It's just how we are. Of course we want more. Of course we feel like we need this other thing. Of course we're looking at whatever is next. And I look around and I see, see it in all of us. I see it in myself. We want all these things. We're just chasing and chasing without even thinking about, really, if I get this thing, will it make me happy? And the unspoken cry of our hearts is, 
if only that, if only I could get that, then I would be happy. But then we get that, and then it's just on to the next thing. You know, I remember reading this article by Matt Chandler's old roommate from college. You guys know Matt Chandler. He's a famous pastor, kind of in the news lately. Um, but this guy, his roommate, I don't even remember his name. It's kind of uh, to the point of his article. But he was in college, and a lot of people pegged him as a leader. They looked up to him. They thought he was great. There's this big Bible study on campus, and they said, maybe you will lead it when you're a senior. You know, we see that leadership quality in you, that it factor. And people were puffing him up, and he felt like really like God was using his gifts, and he had a lot of friends, all these things. And then the next year, a new kid came to school named Matt Chandler, and then everyone loved him more. Oh, this guy's a way better communicator. He's more gifted. He's more popular. People were drawn to him, and everyone forgot his roommate. And the crazy thing is they lived together. So he's like with this guy who's just the better version of him in every way. And he said, honestly, even though he liked Matt personally, it was really difficult because everything that he wanted, it's like Matt took. And he became a pastor too. But this whole time for years, he was secretly envious. If only I could just have a big church like Matt Chandler, then I would be happy again. If only I could have that notoriety. If only people would write articles about me. And he didn't want to even say that out loud. It sounds so bad, but that's what he was thinking in his heart. His church was never enough. The people who came, it was never enough. The conferences he spoke at, never enough. And he felt ashamed until one day he was talking to Matt Chandler and he decided, I'm just going to be honest. And he said, you know, Matt, all these years, I've been jealous of you. I I wish I had your life. And Matt Chandler said, funny you mentioned that because I was just thinking that I was kind of envious of you. Like I was like, no, you don't, don't, man. Get out of here, dude. But he's like, for real. He said, you know, I kind of wish that I could just be, not to be derogatory, but I could just be a regular pastor where I don't have the spotlight on me all the time, where I don't have 10,000 people with expectations of me all the time, where I could just go to church and love these people and know every single person and just preach the word and not have to worry about the criticism and the gossip. And now, I mean, you guys might know what's going on with Matt Chandler. Like the New York Times is writing about him, right? If he stumbles a little bit, then everyone's going to come for him. The sharks are swimming. We should pray for him. Not to, I don't want to gossip about him or pile onto that. But the thing is, no one's envying him right now. And reading that article, you just realize that nothing's ever enough. You get the thing that you thought was going to make you happy, and you're on to the other thing. Sometimes it's the thing you used to have. Why do I bring this up? Because Paul is saying here that there is one thing that is enough, and that's what he's praying for. He's writing this whole letter from prison to tell these Ephesian Christians. He's praying for them that they would know that they could be filled with all the fullness of God. See, the thing with enough is that it's not objective. It's subjective. If you're looking for a quantity outside of you, more money, more people, bigger house, nothing will stop you from wanting even more. What's new will become regular and then old. The only way to have enough is to be satisfied with what you have. You've seen it, right? You've seen, I know you've seen it, the poorer person than you who is happier than you the person with a objectively worse career situation than you, who still smiles a lot more than you do. The person who has gone through way more suffering than you and I have ever gone through. And yet, for some reason, this person is less bitter and more joyful than I am, even though I have so much. 
Paul doesn't pray that we will have everything we want. He's praying that we will have the one thing that we need. The one thing that cannot be exhausted. The one thing that if we find it like a treasure in a field, it will make everything else seem worthless. Paul prays that we will find our fill in God. And that's something that has to happen in us. Because God is everywhere. Remember, I quoted from Augustine earlier. He said, our hearts are restless, but the full quote in his confessions is part of a prayer. And he said, oh, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We'll close here. Bob Perks, the guy I was talking about, he's an author. He was eavesdropping on that father and daughter. Uh, they said, I love you and I wish you enough. And the daughter boarded her plane and she took off. And the father was still hanging around and he walked over to the window near where Bob Perks was sitting. And for some reason, Bob Perks just decided to ask him about it. Okay, maybe a little, a little invasive or whatever, but he said, excuse me, sir, I'm sorry. I, I just overheard your conversation and I heard you say, I wish you enough. And I'm just a writer. I just was curious, never heard it before. And the father was kind, okay? And he said, oh, that, you know, that, that's just a thing that my family's just been saying for a long time. Like, my parents used to always say it. But then he kind of went into a zone, and it was like he was remembering something, and he continued reciting from memory, kind of something maybe his family had always said. He said, I wish you enough sun to keep your attitude bright. I wish you enough rain to appreciate the sun more. I wish you enough happiness to keep your spirit alive. I wish you enough pain so that the smallest joys in life appear much bigger. I wish you enough gain to satisfy your wanting. I wish you enough loss to appreciate all that you possess. I wish you enough hellos to get you through the final goodbyes. And the crazy thing about that list of things he was praying for is some of those things aren't positive. I wish you for enough pain. What is that about? But the truth is, life isn't always sunshine. There is rain as well, and there are goodbyes. The man was old, his daughter was grown, and he confided that every time they said goodbye, he couldn't help but wonder if it's the last time. And yet still, there was this wish of enough. And see, that's really it. See, for that guy, it was just a wish. But when Paul is praying, he knows that it's true. A Christian, you have enough That's what Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about, the riches of his grace. And more than his gifts, you have the giver. He's real, he's not far, and he is in of himself enough. He loves you, he wants what's best for you, and all you have to do is believe it to receive it. So Paul prays, and I pray for you and for me, to the God of heaven and earth, that according to the riches of his glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And it is enough. Will you pray with me? Father, that's all we need. You have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless, God, until and unless they find their rest in you. God, you know that there are other things that we need in life, that we need 
food and we need shelter and you provide all those things for us as your heavenly father. But you know, ultimately the one thing that we need that our hearts need beyond anything else is you. Lord, help us to see that. Help us to be satisfied in that. And God, we know that everything else that you call us to do will flow from that with joy, God, with thanksgiving, with a completely different approach. So we look to you. We thank you for Christ, what he did for us, the ultimate proof of your love for us on the cross. We pray these things in his name. Amen.